Hello and welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington. This is the show where we bring you the stories behind the startups. And of course, my wonderful co-host is here. Hey, Becca. Hey, how are you? Oh, doing great, doing great. What is it that you do at TechCrunch, just in case our readers forget? I cover the analysis and the trends behind the venture industry for TechCrunch Plus. That's right, our fantastic TechCrunch Plus product, which if you're not a subscriber, you should go do that right now. You'll get even more stories behind the startups, but we got a, we got a few of them here too, and we're bringing you one today. But before we do that, just remember to go ahead and rate and review and subscribe and share and make sure everybody knows about this podcast in your network and knows how great it is and comes and listens to it. But we have a great show for you today. Really fantastic guest. Today, we're talking to Rosie Nguyen, who is the co-founder and CMO of FanHouse, a creator subscription and community platform that helps creators monetize their content. So basically, you know, a way to make money off of your efforts building a huge community online. And the platform differentiates itself by taking a much smaller cut and in a few other key ways. But we'll let Rosie explain more about what it is that FanHouse does. Hey, Rosie, how's it going? Hi, how are you? Great, great. Good to have you on. What we typically do to kick these off is just have you explain a little bit about your company. So do you want to tell us about FanHouse? Yes, I would love to. And thank you so much for having me here. Yeah. FanHouse is a company that I co-founded about two years ago. And we're a company that helps creators both monetize exclusive content and build community. So you can kind of think of it as almost like a, uh, you know, a Patreon combined with a Discord, right? Where there are features for subscriptions, monetization, and then there are also features for creators to really connect with their fans and get to know who their supporters are. Nice. Yeah, great. Obviously, there's a need for that out there. I think it's like a carrot people have been chasing i guess that's the right metaphor like people want to have that closer connection to their community ability to monetize their community especially you know like in a multi-platform world right like you don't want it tied necessarily to any one Mm. social network Mm because who knows what's going to happen there oh yeah but tell us a little bit more about how you kind of got into this or why you wanted to do this to begin with yeah i'll try not to take too long with this but it's uh There's a lot that went into it and kind of ties back to my background, but I was in college at the time. So I went to UPenn for school. I graduated in 2020, which is COVID year, as you might remember. Um, But so a lot of- Oh, shit, you're right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. How forget? (laughs) (laughs) No, so a lot of my college experience was defined by um, being a low-income student. My family, uh, yeah, we grew up really poor on food stamps, things like that, and When I turned 18, actually, my uh, mom got run over by a car, became disabled. So I actually ended up becoming the breadwinner for my family when I went off to college. So all of college was very much like hustling, trying to make as much money as I can as a student to send back home for my family to pay the bills. So I was doing a lot of work study, a lot of like lab experiments, things like that. Anyway, so (laughs) March of 2020, I was a senior. COVID hit. And all of the campuses closed down, like everything, right, closed down. We Mm -hmm. all got kicked off campus, which meant I lost my work-study job. And I was very stressed because I was like, this is kind of the one income source that I have right now. 
And fortunately at the time, I also happened to be a content creator on Twitter. I had a humble following of like 30,000 followers, which is a sizable amount, right? It's a lot of people in one room, but- It's more than uh, I have. You might have more than that. (laughs) No, nowhere close to that. Uh, But on Twitter, it's not a number that like, anyone cares about giving you money to like brands don't care sponsors don't care like you don't get money for being on twitter with thirty thousand followers yeah i've Uh, asked a lot and i don't yeah yeah but i was always someone that was very personable with my audience i really like genuinely cared about the people that supported me and i'm very open and transparent about like who i am my content and so i i was sharing a lot of this college journey and how you know tough it was being a low-income student and i saw that i had supporters that would venmo me for things like lunch or for graduation or, you know, for books, tuition. And it, one, was really helpful to helping me and my family get by, but two, made me realize kind of this power of community. And I started really leaning into different membership platforms, monetization platforms. I used, you know, Patreon, I used Twitch, I used OnlyFans, uh, even when it was really big. And I started to learn a lot about monetization as a creator and also realized all the problems that came with trying to monetize as a creator at this time. And so I used all these platforms, I mean, for over a year, really. And then I met my co-founder sometime around May of 2020. Uh, we became honestly like best friends. And I was telling him all these problems I had with the different platforms, right? Like Patreon was just too stifling or outdated. And, you know, mm-hmm. OnlyFans was too pornographic and, you know, harassive and unsafe. And then, you know, Twitch just took too much of a, of a cut for me mm-hmm. to make any money, things like that. And, and I kept saying, I wish there was a platform that solved these problems, right? I wish there was a platform with a low take rate. Uh, you know, that protected creators from leaks that had a mobile app that felt really fun and friendly and easy to use. And my co-founder, Koi, is a Stanford engineering grad. And so, you know, his light bulb kind of lit up and he was like, mm. why don't we build this platform together? And that's so that's kind of how Fan House came about was uh, these personal experiences of mine and and this co-founder I knew that was a builder. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm curious because you did mention some of those larger mm-hmm. platforms that are already trying to sort of monetize this space like Patreon and OnlyFans. And I know there's a whole fleet of smaller startups, in addition to yours, who are trying to sort of take a stab at it as well. What changes did you make to make sure that FanHouse would kind of rise above some of those other options or seem like a better mm-hmm. solution to this problem? Um, yeah, I mean, I mentioned some of it vaguely, but one uh, one thing that we really felt strongly about was a 10% take rate, right? So mm-hmm. Twitch takes 50% of subscriptions. Um, wow. OnlyFans takes 20%. I don't know, like Cameo takes 25%. Most companies take more than 10%. And we really wanted to keep the lowest take rate that we could take while, you know, being sustainable. Because we really believed about like, the money that content creators make should be going to content creators, right? Like these one, two percentages can be such a difference when you're trying to mm-hmm. provide for your family, uh, right? So that that's one. And I think two, uh, a really big thing, a big problem that I had with platforms, um, including both Patreon and OnlyFans, is that your exclusive content very quickly does not become exclusive anymore when someone takes a screenshot and puts it across the internet on Twitter, on Reddit, on everywhere. Like I was I was seeing just huge mega files of my content. And again, it wasn't really even pornographic content I was doing. It was things like singing covers. It was like, you know, um, extra photos that I had taken. But it was seeing everything that I put work into creating just being blasted across the internet with the most, I mean, with uh, kind of the most vile things that were being said or the most vile mm. things that were being done to them. 
and I don't know how you know how much you want me to go into that, but at, right, I'd see people like jerking off to my videos mm. uh, and then you know posting that, uh, and it was it was really gross and it was very disgusting for me and and you know took a toll on my mental health. I feel like, and I kept emailing these platforms. Right, I was emailing OnlyFans like, hey, my stuff is being leaked. Can you do something about it? And they wouldn't reply to the emails at all. Wow. Uh, and I think every every creator that you'll talk to on Patreon or OnlyFans or elsewhere will talk about dealing with leaks as one of the worst things that they have to deal with. And one of the first things we built into FanHouse was traceable watermarks. So oh. every account that is on FanHouse, if you're looking at media content, there's like a string of letters that honestly are all across the image, but those uh-huh. letters are unique to each account. So if anyone screenshots and posts things elsewhere, our team actually is able to trace those watermarks and know exactly what account posted it. And we find them like $200, we deactivate them. Uh-huh. And yeah, and, and we DMCA the content and take them down. So that's something we do for all of our creators. And it's one of the things when I talk to creators that they cite is one of their favorite things because no other app does this for them. Uh, but yeah, uh, safety is one of the first things that we, we put to mind for creators. Yeah, that's great. Because I was gonna, I thought that was like intractable, but like, like as a problem. But then when you talk about the solution, it's like, oh, of course that's the solution. Like I remember that <laughs> from when I w- worked at Apple and I would mm. watch like town hall videos and shit and they would have my badge number just like bouncing around the screen. Mm. It's like, if you leak this, we're coming after your ass, right? Which... Makes a lot of sense. It's it's been used in corporate environments like that, I think, for a long time. Mm-hmm. But totally makes a ton of sense to apply it to that. That's that's great. I mean, and, and it's so it's scalable too. That's what the the genius of it is. It's like, yeah, you can like do that and actually scale it and actually mm-hmm. like automate huge chunks of that process. So not make a massive burden in terms of your community management policies or whatever. Yeah, but still protect people. So that's yes. yeah, that's really great. Yeah, I was going to ask how complicated that was, but if a town hall is using it, this must be not complex <laughs> technology knowing my knowing what I know about these kind yeah, of town we, halls. We well, I'm again, I'm not technical, I'm not a builder, but uh we built it in like a month with our first release of the app, right? So we started talking about Fanhouse uh around like September of 2020 and then we launched the app November of 2020. And yeah, the very first version of FanHouse had these watermarks in them. So wow. why other apps don't have it, I, I don't know. But yeah, we had we had one one person do it in their mobile app. So that's great. Yeah. And then I also wanted to ask about because you mentioned the take rate, right? That was really important to you mm-hmm. as a creator. Mm-hmm. But obviously, there's a reason why Twitch does fifty percent. Part yes. of it is probably you know we like money, but yeah. part of it is like we need to pay for things too, mm-hmm. right? So. Mm-hmm. How how could you set at that 10% rate? And do you think that that is something that you can kind of scale with as you grow the business? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Twitch could never take 10% and not by their own fault, right? Because they are a live streaming platform that's very different from what we do. Sure, and yeah. they have server costs and, you know, storage costs that are way higher than what FanHouse has to do. But I think that's part of FanHouse that I think we're proud of too, is we're trying to find the the easiest way to help creators make money. Right. So like, how can we help creators money uh, make money? Can they make money just through text and media and video and photo posts uh, that we can, you know, that it's cheap enough for us to run so that we can take a 10 percent take rate. Right. And yeah, like, I mean, creators, right. We're not trying to displace Twitch, for example. I think Twitch mm-hmm. does a great job with, you know, helping 
creators get discovered or growing a community. But when you have all these thousands of followers on Twitch now, for example, I'm a Twitch streamer too. I have something like 20,000 followers on Twitch. When I have those 20,000 people now, when I'm not streaming, how do I continue to make an income? Mm, right. uh, and I think that right, those are things that other platforms aren't really thinking about or tackling. But right, once my community is in Fan House now, it's so easy for me to you know take a photo during the day, throughout my day, and, and post it on Fan House and be able to continue having this passive income stream and get you know again the majority of my earnings. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point too. Because like the fact that I alluded to it quickly in the beginning, but when you've established yourself on some of these other platforms it doesn't really do you any good to just continue to only use those exclusively. Like even, cause you could, let's say you had a huge following on Instagram or whatever too, which I'm sure you probably do, but like you could post that photo on Instagram, but that's not going to do anything for you over there. Right. So, but is that, is that kind of your target market is like the growth is going to happen off platform and then come to us? Or are you thinking about growth and network building and that kind of stuff too? I think for the time being, it's really about, already established creators, right? They've grown on a different platform. And now they're like, I have fans that want to support me. How can they do that? Mm -hmm. Right. So it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of the same thing how like Patreon works, right? It's not like you go on to Patreon and then you see someone for the first time and you're like, yeah, I'm going to pay $10 to see their podcast. It's kind of the other way around. Like, oh yeah, they're my favorite podcaster and I want more content. That said, we do think about discoverability a lot. I don't think, right. I don't think it's mutually exclusive that like you can't also grow on Fan House, but for now, it's really, you know, bottom of the funnel. It's really like for the people that have community and want to figure out how to do more with that. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, too, with some of the platforms that are out there that monetize this type of business stream, a lot of them have like a specific demographic that uses them more so. Like OnlyFans is obviously not just adult content creators, but they tend to attract adult content creators because of their guidelines and sort of the policies they have there. And Patreon and Twitch kind of attract their own specific types of creators. I mean, I'm assuming you guys aren't targeting a specific type of creator, but have you noticed any trends in the kind of creators you see using the platform or sort of signing up maybe more than others or maybe maybe not? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think right now the main vertical that we serve are streamers and gamers on FanHouse. Mm-hmm. And I think it a big part of it, again, has to do with, I think FanHouse works really well for creators that have, you know, like a very dedicated community, like almost like cult-like communities, mm-hmm. right? And streamers tend to have those because they're so personable with their audiences. For example, we've launched fan houses with, I don't know, with, you know, meme pages with like millions of followers that don't convert at all. Because Mm -hmm. actually when someone is consuming a meme or something like that, they actually don't really care about the person behind the page. Uh, And and Fan House right now works for creators where it's like you really like the person behind the page. So like Hmm. kind of the second demographic would be like musicians, for example, right? We have a lot of small musicians with with really dedicated and loyal fans. Yeah, I think each platform, especially for a small startup too, like a lot of how we grow is just through like word of mouth, right? So when the first few gamers get on, you know, they talk to the rest of their gamer friends and that's kind of how we we like get that little wedge um, for ourselves. And, and I'll also speak to just myself as a founder too. Um, a lot of our original growth too is really just people who are my friends, right? And I'm mm-hmm. again on Twitter and I'm on Twitch. And so those were most of the people that I knew. Yeah. I think something that I think Becca was kind of touching on too there is like, do you have, I think I read somewhere that you were described as the PG-13 version of mm. OnlyFans, mm-hmm. but 
like, is that something you have specifically mandated in terms of guidelines of what's allowed on the site, what mm-hmm. isn't allowed on the site? Mm-hmm. And how do you think about that audience? And like, do you think that's something to be avoided? Do you, what do you mm-hmm. think about the OnlyFans experience overall? <laughs> and like, I know they've had big challenges. I know we've had, we've had Amy, we had her on stage at Disrupt talking about basically saying everything possible to get away from the, like to have the audience forget the fact that it's like about sex work. Like mm. primarily, I think, right? If you looked at the mm-hmm. numbers. So yeah, how do you think about that in terms of your business? And like, is it something you're interested in, not interested in, mandating against? Like that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, right? Uh, wow, this this is an interesting topic to me. I have a lot. I, I mean, it's too much. That's why my question went on for forever because it's a very nuanced <laughs> uh, No, I, I love this topic. I have a lot of thoughts on OnlyFans. Both, again, as a creator, I was on OnlyFans for over a year and both as someone building in the space. But I think... Honestly, I think of OnlyFans and I think most people that know OnlyFans well will think of it. I mean, we'll tell you it's synonymous to pornography or adult content at this point. And I mean, I I think I read a stat once that like 98% of content on OnlyFans is not safe for work. And just speaking from my own experience as a content creator, right? When I got on OnlyFans, it was really to do singing covers. That was something that I like to do that I didn't post anywhere else. Uh, And very, very quickly, I mean... Like within the first week of launching an OnlyFans, I had a barrage of just like, I mean, harassment and threats. Like mm. people were th- were sending me like death and rape threats because they said I needed to be posting naked photos on OnlyFans. Wow. Because so the, OnlyFans. I mean, through the platform or like through the platform and off the uh, Yeah, like through or, OnlyFans and then right, sometimes okay. on Twitter too. And I was, yeah. I mean, people were making like Twitter pages dedicated to me being raped. <laughs> and 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 that's not something that right like happens to me at all any anymore. It only happened on OnlyFans, and it was because, again, the nature of OnlyFans and what people expect. Right? If you yep. think of OnlyFans as like exclusive Pornhub, and you subscribe and you don't see what you expect to see, you get really angry. I mean, that's that's the behavior. It's right. It's like it's men subscribing to jerk off to you. That's that's all I saw from my subscribers on OnlyFans, and that's really I think what. One of my problems with, yeah, like when you make your platform for adult content creators, which I think is great, right? Sex work is amazing and I support sex work all the way, but but that's really what it becomes known for. And it's really hard to do anything else if you want to do anything else as a creator. Right. And so when we set out to making Fan House, we weren't trying to compete with OnlyFans. We weren't trying to displace OnlyFans or be a, an adult site. We wanted to be the site that didn't exist, right? The site for, mm-hmm. again, like, hey, these people just have supporters. They have amazing personalities. They have, you know, behind the scenes content, like all this extra work about their careers or their lives that they want to share. Where can they share that? Because honestly, you cannot share that on OnlyFans. Like, sure, you you can, quote unquote, in the sense that, like, sure, you can right. post it. Yeah. But the amount of, like harassment that I had to deal with or anyone I think deals with when they when they use OnlyFans in a way that's not not safe for work is I mean it's really frightening and so that's partly why we have actually very strict terms of service that yeah make fan house more pg-13 right like we don't allow pornography we don't allow nudity and it's because yeah we're not trying to be an adult site and I think there are plenty of adult sites that do this well and Fan House doesn't have to be one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that you bring up a great point that maybe people don't think about when they think about that discussion around OnlyFans of like, yes, they clearly have aspirations to dissociate the not disassociate themselves, mm-hmm. but like also be also be like 
the platform for creators. But if you do that, you do a disservice to all of those creators because like you, they come on and they encounter these expectations, right? Because Mm -hmm. no matter what you would like to happen, that's what OnlyFans had. Like that's how it's built its success to date. And that's like community that it's built around it, right? So you're going to encounter that. And it's not fair to the adult creators who are on there or to uh, safer work creators who want to be on there to pretend otherwise. Cause then Mm -hmm. you're just kind of like, burying your head in the sand and like not building the right structures, right? No, I, I completely agree with you, actually. And I as a creator, too, I've seen this happen so much on OnlyFans where it's when they try to yeah do a thing for one group or the other, it, it tends to hurt both. So I'll give you an mm-hmm. example, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's super controversial decision to like not allow adult content anymore uh, and quickly got overturned, right? Because they were trying to go mainstream and PG and cater to non-adult content creators. But you can't do that when, again, the majority of what's holding up your platform is adult creators. And yeah, like I think we've seen them make a lot of decisions, I think, with like, uh, I don't know if you guys know anything about like, the whole Bella Thorne controversy that happened, mm-hmm. I think, two years ago one or two years ago. But same thing when they cater to, right, like these big musicians or celebrities or artists that don't really want to do not safe for work content, they end up doing things like, yeah, like they ended up like capping the tip rate and like lock message rate at the time. And these things that really hurt people, again, that were trying to make money on their platform. So again, I really think, yeah, if you want to serve adult content, because I think, yeah, creators are so different depending on what they do. And adult content creators are such a niche of their own. And if you want to build and cater to them, you really need to commit to them is what I believe. And I think it does hurt me when I see, when you know, when I hear you saying things like, yeah, disrupt, you know, they'll talk about everything except sex work. Uh, because mm. that's, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think you can just be honest about yourselves if, that, if that's your platform, um, then just do that, you know, do that one thing really well. Right. But, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, they really would make it seem like half the videos on there were like cooking. That's right. It was weird. (laughs) It was a weird conversation. But it's good to hear you talk about like, you know, just based on your experience and based on the available information out there, like you're not crazy and thinking like that's the association, regardless of what they say about it. Right. It's like, no, that is your community and Mm -hmm. be there for that community. Right. But yeah, I think a totally different subject, but I I do want to get back just to your origin story with this like you told us like how it all came about but it was it something you always wanted to do like did you ever (laughs) did you want to be an entrepreneur did you want to start your own business and you clearly you know you're very determined and you were like learned at an early age like you got to go out there and make the money but did specifically being a tech entrepreneur was that always in the cards for you god no no. absolutely (laughs) not i did not know i wanted to become an entrepreneur until I became one. And even then, <laughs> even now, sometimes every day, I'm like, does this make sense? I mean, don't get me wrong. I love what I do. This is the most rewarding, you know, thing I've ever done. And I'm so, so thankful that I ended up here and to be, you know, as young as I am and and really living my dream, uh, it, it feels like. But that said, I, again, I, I mentioned to you guys, a big, big part of my motivation all the time is providing for my family at home, right? right? Providing for my parents and my, my sibling. And being a startup founder isn't that. That's not the type of person that goes to start to start startups, right? Like the type of person that drops out of Stanford and goes to like, you know, start start something crazy is is someone that tends to have a safety net. Yes. And I, I don't really come from that background. I don't really know other founders. I actually used to think entrepreneur was the last thing that I wanted to do. 
because all I wanted was a stable, like, nine to five that paid me well. So I knew that my family was going to be okay. Yeah. And you actually, certainly and consistency. Exactly. Right? Um, and actually, after I graduated from Penn, actually, I, I was doing investment banking. I accepted a full-time return offer there and I was doing that for about six months. I actually was doing banking and fan house at the same time for a couple months. It was mm. insane. I don't know. I don't think I like ever slept. <laughs> but um, this was like both 80 hour a week. <laughs> Yes, jumps. exactly. It was like it was like banking till 2 a.m. And then I do some fan house till like 4 a.m. And fan house I was doing because I just loved. I was just like, I really believe in solving this problem and to, to helping people with this because I know I need it and I know other people need it. Uh, and banking was because, yeah, I need this paycheck for my month to month bills. Yeah, I, I was doing both for a while. And it wasn't until we raised our pre-seed, actually, that I quit my investment banking job because I don't think... As much as I love Fan House, I don't know if I would have been able to do it. Just realistically, if I wasn't getting paid at all, my family is not going to eat. Yeah. So luckily, yeah, we, we've been able to raise money. We've raised our pre We've raised our Series A. I think we've raised over about $22 million in total now. Mm-hmm. And I'm so, so fortunate to have that. But, but yeah, I think being a founder is one of the hardest jobs in the world. Nobody teaches you or nobody can teach you because mm-hmm. every startup— is so different. Like no one can teach you exactly like how to hire for your startup. Every, right? Like a great hire for one startup can be completely bad for another startup, right? And no one can teach you like, yeah, like, you know, who you should raise from, like every investor, everything is just so, so different. And I feel like I'm learning every day to like, yeah, I, I have to learn how to do 10 different jobs, right? I have to learn how to fundraise. I have to learn how to build a team and manage a team. And then I have to learn how to, yeah, market, uh, do marketing and do sales and do partnerships. <laughs> and I think, yeah, again, it's very hard for people who've come from disadvantaged backgrounds, right? Again, myself, low income or like first generation even like, or female even like mm-hmm. there, I mean, like less than, I don't think like 1% of female or 2% of female founders raise for a reason, Right. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very hard place to be if you don't already, I think, have have a big, uh, I guess, like toolkit or like the, 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 you know, strong deck of cards. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I think that you're got to be in the 0.0 something percent mm-hmm. in terms of like all the intersections of things mm-hmm. you have against you uh, <laughs> for founders raising money. And Beck can probably speak to that too more <laughs> from her work on the venture side. But like. Yeah, it's still very much, and you know, Dom on our team covers this all the time, right? That it's like, it doesn't matter how much you see out there in terms of like lip service or whatever, mm-hmm. it's old boys club in most of the ways that matter still, right? And and in many really scary ways, it's trending back towards that, not away from that, right? Yeah. Yeah. But how did that, like, you talked about raising, how did you go into the raising process? How did you find that? And did you encounter a lot of resistance in those rooms or what was that like for you? Mm -hmm. I think I was one I'm really lucky again for uh, my co-founder I think he right comes from kind of the more the background of like you know Stanford like his parents were founders (laughs) so he kind of and right he he always knew that he wanted to be a founder and I think he's taught me a lot like he taught me what the hell a series A even meant, right? I was, yeah, I was learning the word series A as I was raising my series A. So that's mm-hmm. me as a founder. But he he really helped me a lot. And I think there are a lot of mentors in this space that helped me a lot. But our fundraising process was very, yeah, like again, my co-founder, Koi, kind of had some connections from Stanford. And kind of the first few people you talk to, if they love your idea, they connect you to other people. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah. So that's how we ended up like with our pre-seed meeting a lot of our investors, right? So Koi was kind of connected to Jeff Morris Jr., who was our our co-lead, and then right Jeff Morris Jr. connected us to like Harry Stubbings and the Chainsmokers, and you know a lot of these other people that filled out our our cap table. But I think one is really like kind of having those connections and people that will reply to your DM about the idea you haven't taken a meeting with you. And mm-hmm. that alone is, I mean, is so hard for a lot of people. If, if I'm being honest, I don't know if I could have done that alone because I didn't know um, mm-hmm. kind of these tech connections. Obviously, I do now. But yeah, at, at the time, right, when you're a very, very early stage startup founder, that's hard. And then the second part is, I think, yeah, just having a good idea and having a compelling argument. And I think being a, the type of founder that investors believe in. And I think we had those. I think we had a product that really made sense. I think we had numbers, right? We had creators that were making a lot of money on our platform. And I think we had really, really compelling stories, actually. And I think, right, like my background and Koi's background went really well together, you know, Stanford Warren grad. And then I think what got a lot of the investors we have on our side was, again, my story of just really being a creator, being someone that understood creators and cared so deeply about Mm -hmm. how we would be changing the lives of creators. I think that was very apparent. And I've done, yeah, I've done um, press interviews before where that's exactly what our investors said was the reason why they invested in us, right? Was, you know, you can see uh, Jasmine Rice Girl, that's my online handle. Like you can see how true she is to herself and her, you know, identity as a content creator too. And that makes you want to believe in her. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think authenticity is really key. And it's something I think about a lot that sets us apart because I think Becca, as you said, there are so many startups in the space that want to do the mm-hmm. same things too. Yeah. Right. And especially when we were raising on when we started to like creator economy was the buzzword, right? Like before, you know, that was the thing everyone wanted to invest in and everyone was looking for some kind of company like that. And I think what set us apart was the fact that really I, our team had me. Because if you look at other founding teams, <laughs> it's going to be, <laughs> right? I don't want to completely stereotype, uh, but but most of the teams I, I looked at, it's like two white guys from Stanford uh, yes. building building a yeah creator monetization company for people that honestly largely tend to be women. So mm. yeah, that, I think that's a, that's a big asset for us. Yeah, yeah definitely. Because when you said that, I tried to think of the founders of some of the other companies. And <laughs> of course, I'm not saying they're all bad or anything, but yeah, I'm sure. like, I don't think any of them are else are like founded by an actual creator who would actually know the issues firsthand and stuff. So I definitely am not surprised that's, that helps you stand out. Right. Yeah, it's all kind of like thinking back on it now, and I'll say this because you would say it, but it seems very parasitical or whatever, right? Like it's like, it's just a bunch of people who are like, oh, look at this. Like I did all the math because I'm a math guy or whatever. And this is the way to make money opportunistically, and I'm going to do that. And I don't understand any of the problems involved in the, like a core or realistic way, right? Mm-hmm. But very predatory, I would say, actually, rather. But yeah. But I, I am curious about that, too, because it's like the other ones that do exist, like the legacy ones, they also seem ill-fit because they predate the thing. Like they predate the real situation they're addressing, I think, for the most part, right? Like OnlyFans and Patreon, like... They're not for that. And people are trying to make them for that, but they're not there. But I don't know. It's it's a weird one, though, because like Becca said, like we get people pitching us all the time on like, this is a problem that needs solving. And yet it seems like something that none of we don't I don't remember the names of most of them. Right? I don't know. About right. you, Becca, but like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like an incredibly hard problem to solve, but I guess it's that ingredient. But do you think there's anything else about timing or about like what's happening now or like what mm-hmm. what is it that you think, I guess, defines the ability of fan has to succeed or is it all on kind of your experience and your expertise 
Um, oh, I mean, no, I think timing is definitely a huge part. Mm. Again, we were a COVID startup, right? And I think yeah. during the pandemic, there were a lot of people and creators that needed new sources of income. So they were you know, more readily uh, open to signing up for this new platform. And then there were a lot of fans who had a lot of time and disposable income to spend, right? Like I think you saw there were statistics like across the board that, you know, on Twitch, things like that, like spending on content creation uh, was just up. So I think, yeah, I think we launched during a very, very ideal time during great markets for for fundraising and and during a time where people were very, very uh, bullish on the creator economy. But yeah, I, I'm never going to discount the fact that I think being a founder that is very aligned with your product and mission is always going to give you just an extra competitive edge, right? And I, I don't think it's completely necessary, to be fair. I think I've seen great startups. Uh, I have a lot of friends, too, that, you know, that kind of do the like, hey, I did the math and I think there's a problem here that we can solve and make a lot of money. And I think if you execute it well, absolutely, you can you can do that. But I don't know. I think the creator space specifically, though, is just a little bit of a niche space where when you are authentic and, and genuine, it sets you apart, especially for your audience. Because content creators are very, very fickle people. And I yeah. get it because I'm one too. Like we, like everyone wants to cater to us, right? Like everyone is trying to get our attention for something to sell their product, to represent their product. I mean, yeah. And you have to be very, very picky about who you choose. And I think a large part at the end of the day of, of why a creator will choose something is just like trust. Right. If yeah. they trust you and what you're building. And I think a lot of the reasons that our creators trust us is because I think I'm there in the trenches with them. Right. Like I'm I'm using Fan House to still monetize, uh, to still provide for my family and everything that we decide as a platform. Right. Like will affect me first and foremost. Yeah. So, That's so a yeah, great I think that, point. The authenticity yeah. <laughs> thing, because I think we share that. I think so. Anyways, Becca, with creators where well, come on, we do. We, we're, people are so, I guess, thirsty. I don't know. People like really want our attention and mm-hmm. our time, like mm-hmm. very much so, right? Oh, yeah. And are constantly trying to use us to their advantage in some way or another. And so what comes through better than anything else is authenticity. It's the mm-hmm. only filter we're able to develop that can effectively like act as like quick triage for that kind of thing. Because anything else is too time consuming or too energy consuming or whatever else. Right. So you get that muscle and then you apply it. And I think creators are in that same boat where it's like anybody who I can smell any kind of like, you're just trying to take advantage of me. I have no time for you and I'm going to move on and I'm not going to provide you feedback or anything. Like I'm gone mm. as a customer. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And something else I wanted to ask you about, cause you mentioned the timing of the startup and mm-hmm. sort of why you think it partially took off is because people were at home and looking to spend money on this type of content. Looking at 2023, the predictions for the overall economic conditions don't look super great. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you think if we do teeter toward a recession or end up entering one, how much does that actually affect how much people are willing to spend on this space? Because I actually don't know. Do people generally keep paying for this kind of content? Is it like a low enough minimum kind of to access this that it would still be worth it? I'm curious if you guys have sort of any like thoughts about how the current year how it progresses may like impact mm-hmm. creators on the site I mean we've definitely thought about it I don't have the answers either I, like you know we don't have projections I think we can guess that like probably spending will be down 
as it is with anything that that is like more entertainment or like right like not like your basic food or water and things like that i mean people will always spend money like it's never going to be zero right like people will always still spend money on entertainment Mm-hmm. which I think this is and, and I think like just just support and I say this just again like from what I see like I've had fans yeah that sometimes they're like hey I can't you know keep doing the monthly subscription but I you know can do like this one tip you know every now and then where I can or I can still do the the twitch prime every now and then I think people always love like will love to support however they can and actually one yeah one thing that we've been working on kind of with that in mind is ways for fans to continue supporting without having to spend a lot of money so mm-hmm. we've actually been building um right so so fan house initially is like kind of paywall right in order to subscribe to creator you pay a set amount that they per month um but we've released two features uh, one is a password wall and one is a spotify wall so password walls actually creators can opt in to have a password instead of a paywall and if you know their password you can subscribe to them for free right mm-hmm. so it still allows fans to support and creators to know who their fans are but in a way that is more affordable for fans that might not be able to afford it and maybe for creators who don't need as much monetization and then once the fans are in you can do things like you know tip goals and locked content and all of the one off services and then we have spotify wall which is kind of similar but if you connect your spotify and you uh, have a, an artist and you're a top artist you can subscribe to them for free so that's what like the chain smokers use on fan house for example right. uh, but yeah playing with different ways to like yeah support someone and still help them you know make money in some way right like how can we get people to interact with the creators like sponsor posts more because then their sponsors will pay them more but the fans don't actually have to pay mm-hmm. so things like that i think people um have been latching on to and, and really enjoying on fan house yeah i do think it's, it's like kind of an open question just how a time like this affects this kind of economy because the last time i mean in 2008 I don't even remember what the creator economy looked like in 2008. Did we have one? Sure, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we had some YouTubers. I looked up the top YouTube videos to see what they were, but it was like Avril Lavigne, and I don't know. There was, but could you even pay on YouTube then yet? Like, I don't know if you. I don't know how anything worked, and but I, I just know that it wasn't. There's no comparable. Like you can't talk about it. Like you can talk about like the retail sector or something and be Mm. like. Every time we have an economic decline, this is how the retail sector responds. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an unknown. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit making it up as you go along, but it sounds like you're already quickly kind of like trying to react and respond and yeah, develop yeah. new products and stuff. Um, right? No, I think creator economy as a whole is still just so new. Like no mm-hmm. one really mm-hmm. understands it that well. And yeah, it's definitely not in your you know textbooks or economics classes like we're so far from that. I mean, even just think in the last year or even now, like TikTok is still a, a whole thing that people are trying to understand and yeah. and write about. So and and who knows what's gonna be the next thing tomorrow. I think technology and social media just evolve so so rapidly that all we can do is is really play catch up and, and really guess <laughs> what's gonna yeah. uh, what's gonna work. And just be nimble, right? Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. Well, Rosie, I think that about does it for time. It's been really great talking to you. And thanks for being so open and honest and talking through Fan House and everything else going on. I, I try to be. Thank you so much for having me and really enjoyed the conversation. All right, Becca, that was our conversation with Rosie. 
great guest, really straightforward and really honest about her experience and her company. What did you think? I thought in particular, you know, this is a company that you can't help but compare to OnlyFans. So that might be an interesting place to start. What do you think about the distinctions there between Fan House and OnlyFans? Yeah. No, it was also just really interesting hearing her personal experience with OnlyFans because I definitely haven't talked. I think she might be the first person I've talked to who's actually created content on the platform. So it's interesting to hear some of those pitfalls that I wasn't really familiar with. So I really like that their approach, especially the watermarking, so they can ban people who leak content. Mm -hmm. I know we talked about it a little bit in the conversation, but that's such simple, easy technology. It's kind of crazy when you think about it that OnlyFans isn't doing that to begin with. Right. So it's really good to hear that Rosie's kind of building this platform to kind of fix some of the issues she's experienced personally and kind of right the wrongs that she's come across with things like OnlyFans. Yeah, it's definitely one of those cases where you're like, oh, right, this is something you absolutely should be building in from the beginning so that it's not a problem you have to untangle or retroactively address later, right? Which she could only have gleaned from her experience, which was a big part of what she talked about, about why she's kind of the one to do this and why, and the the split of duties and responsibilities with her co-founder and what each brings to the table. And a big part of what she brings to the table is her personal experience, like not only being on OnlyFans, but also building a significant, sizable community online. I mean, I think I honestly didn't go in knowing that much about her profile or her online persona, except that when I went afterwards and was like, oh yeah, here's her Twitter account and everything. I was like, oh, like I've definitely seen her stuff recirculated into my various social networks before. Um, And she has a huge following, right? Like 200,000 plus people, I think on Twitter for sure. Yeah. No, I had the exact same experience. I looked her up. I didn't recognize her from chatting with her on Zoom, Mm -hmm. but the second I literally was on her profile for maybe one second. I was like, yep, I've seen this picture before. Like, (laughs) I've definitely come across her stuff. But I know, especially in an industry like the creator economy, it was really hot and then it was really not. It's like losing its appeal with a lot of investors right now. Right, right. It's good to talk to someone like Rosie because I think sometimes it gets that gets lost in the conversation as to like why a specific founder is the right person for the job and why someone else couldn't start it. And I think in a category that maybe isn't going to garner as much attention mm-hmm. for the next few years, the companies that will get funding, which shows considering Van House just raised, yeah. it's going to be someone like Rosie where it's like, oh my God, they have so much experience in this area. They know exactly the problems because they've experienced them. Yeah. It's definitely a much easier sell to investors and probably a much better foundation to build the company off of to begin with. Yeah, for sure. We're at that crucial juncture, I think, with the creator economy space where you get you're out of the hype cycle and you're into the kind of trough that follows afterwards. But that's a great opportunity for people like Rosie, where it's like, oh, I have the actual bona fides. Like I'm not we talked about this during the podcast, but like I'm not a casual sort of like just finance bro with some spreadsheets that told me like this is the way to make money. It's like I live and breathe this and there's still opportunity there, but it's harder to exploit. And that's going to mean more success for the people who are genuine right so mm-hmm. i think that's a big part of of her appeal but i we talked a little bit we touched about how the downturn and how the looming kind of global recession will affect this space and rosie i think to her credit like didn't have a ton of answers there but i'm curious if you have more thoughts about what you think will happen or what kind of impacts we might see beyond a sort of general flattening of interest in the space from an investor perspective yeah yeah Because this is one of those categories, I mean, this is what we touched on, 
you can't point really to something in the last downturn or recession of how consumers would spend on this category. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'm assuming that people still did spend on entertainment. People bought video games. People went to the movies, maybe less so. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, well, now the movies are really expensive, but <laughs> it doesn't sound like this kind of content is really expensive. And I liked how she talked about how they have some features that they've already rolled out that would allow people to subscribe to someone maybe without paying a subscription and then tip them or pay for like specific content. So I feel like if they are offering a pricing model where it's like anyone looking to spend anything can kind of find a tier that works for them. Yeah. I don't know how it will fare like overall in the recession, but definitely seems to set them up to fare better than you know, a company where it's like, yep, it's $20 a month, cut and dry, take it or leave it. Like, that's a bit of a different model. But Fanhouse seems to be approaching in a way where, I mean, I'll be curious what happens, but it seems like an actual, like a plan. Yeah. 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 I like the flexibility and I like that they're building stuff that is like reflecting the changing need of consumers, right? Or their customers' consumers, rather. Yeah. I'm very interested to see how this is going to shake out because there's, I'm of two minds about it where I think it's like, this is maybe one of the easiest line items to knock off of your budget if you're like looking to tighten the belt, right? Like it's absolutely purely discretionary spending, right? Right. But on the other hand, you brought up entertainment expenditures and in some of those categories, you can see spikes because- everything else is like so much of a drag that people are like, well, I need something. I need some kind of relief. I need something like the rest of my life is quite bleak. So I'm going to go out and spend in these entertainment categories because maybe they're relatively affordable versus like big ticket items like trips or travel or something like that. And they have a very positive effect on my well-being or my mental health. So that could extend to the creator economy for all we know. Cause like you said, yeah, it's not something we have like comparables or precedents for. So Yeah, I think as long as they stay kind of flexible in the way that Rosie seemed to indicate they were, then they they stand to, again, potentially capitalize really well on this. It's another Mm -hmm. one of those things where it's like the flip side of adversity or challenge is opportunity, right? Depending on how positioned you are. But yeah. Wow, you sound like an entrepreneur saying that. (laughs) I was going to say. Isn't that a challenge? They're like, no, no, it's an opportunity. (laughs) And you're like, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, this is the curriculum for. an MBA or something. It's like, yeah, right. It's a business <laughs> don't textbook. Get an MBA. Just listen to this one episode. <laughs> I think we try. I think we provide at least an MBA equivalent value over the course of the show, and for nothing. So you should thank us, listeners. Honestly, <laughs> definitely write that review that we can read on a future episode. Yeah, to thank us. <laughs> the one the other thing that stood out to me about this, though, and this is kind of a thing that the creator economy, the startups trying to serve the creator economy get knocked on quite frequently, is that you have to kind of be really successful to even use these types of platforms. But I think what's interesting here is because Rosie started by telling us that she wasn't mm. successful enough to make money off of like, you know, like directly influencer on type things. Yeah, like directly on Twitter. And so if she's building it, with her experiences in mind, maybe this will work better for people who aren't in that, say, like top 5% who generally benefit from this. But I mean, that's something else that we'll have to find out. Yeah, I think that they could be right in the sweet spot of like, oh, you get to a certain volume on another social network or something and you're like, can I start to use this to my advantage? And you just start thinking Mm -hmm. about monetization and then you, it seems like fan house may be the perfect destination for you. Cause it's really like low friction when it comes to getting on and like, you don't have to give up every like 10% t- 
take rate means you make enough that it will be worth your time if you continue to do it versus if you're like looking at a Twitch and like, okay, I got to invest all this time and resources in terms of live streaming. And as a 50% take rate, that's like a really heavy hill to climb, especially if you haven't yet reached that like critical mass, right? So I think they could be right in a good spot, but it kind of depends. Yeah, it's definitely going to be tricky for them overall in future where like they have to niche target that like Mm -hmm. cusp influencer audience or something. And I think we've touched on maybe they're, they're thinking about ways to do this, but like they can provide tools that help you accelerate your growth as a community leader or whatever. So yeah, that part is also really interesting because it does seem to maybe put a hard cap, but it's also like, mm, it doesn't, who knows? How big is that market? I know. I have a hard time scoping that market and I'm sure a lot of investors do too, right? But, no, it's so opaque too. Yeah. Because it's like, you truly have no idea how much some of these people make. So it's like, how big are even the big names in this field? Like, I don't know. Like, yeah. it's hard to tell. We only know some of the more transparent ones. Like Mr. Beast basically is like, yeah, I make this much and then I spend that much minus like a dollar on my next video or whatever right but (laughs) (laughs) right yeah it's very cool i think this is a super interesting company to just kind of watch as they progress just because of how many learnings they're gonna come up with in the course of doing business so who knows maybe we'll check back in with rosie in future and see where they're at and see how things are going definitely Found is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Plus reporter Becca Skutak. We're produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>